Thank you, ladies. Thank you, Mike, for leading us. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the letter of Jude. It is a small little letter. It's found at the end of your Bible, right before Revelation. And so I encourage you to turn open to the letter of Jude as for the next three weeks, we're going to be finishing up this quick look at the letter from Jude as we look at God's uh, commandments to us and encouragement to us that we would contend for the faith in the face of false teachers. And so as we start out 2018, one thing I want to focus on is that we have to stand on the Word of God. We cannot cling to anything else. There is no other truth besides the Word of God. And if you notice, the theme of our songs was all about the, the Word of God and how it is our foundation. It is our, it's what we stand on. It's what we base everything on is God's unfallible Word given to us. And so as you turn to the letter of Jude, I want to give you the background that we looked at last week and bring us up to date on where we are. In the letter of Jude, Jude is writing to Christians at the end of the first century to help them to counteract and to stand against false teachers who had crept into the church unnoticingly and had began to stir up people to walk away from the faith. They began to, to tempt them with doctrines that were not true and to try and lead the people of God astray into falsehood. And Jude, who was the brother of Jesus, he writes to the church and including us today, that we are to contend for the faith, that we're to stand ready to stand in the truth of God in the face of heresy being taught, in the face of falsehood being taught, in the face of lies being taught, not only outside the walls of the church, but primarily inside the walls of the church. Just so you know, you should not be shocked that in churches are people who say they are Christians when in fact they are not. I hate to break it to you, but not everyone who sits in church who calls themselves a Christian is actually a Christian. And before you start saying, I hope my neighbor hears this, I need you and me to hear it, that we're not deceived, but that we would examine our own hearts to see, am I truly trusting in Jesus or am I acting apart? You with me so far? This is going to be tough stuff. But I believe it's so important for us. So we're going to read this text. And before I read this to you, I need, to under, I need you to understand this is weird stuff. All right? I'm guessing that a lot of you have not read this in a while. And if you have read it in a while, you probably didn't get a lot of what was being said. Okay? So we're going to read this, and then I'm going to slowly pick it apart. And by slowly, I mean slowly, uh, you know, with respect to the time I have. I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of God's word if you're physically able to this morning. The letter of Jude, there is only one chapter, so we don't need chapter numbers. It's simply verses 5 through 16. And here's what Jude writes. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." Verse 8, yet in like manner these people also, 
relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Would you pray with me, Lord? These are some difficult verses. And God, I ask you to be with us as we study these. Lord, I pray that what we'll see most of all is your beauty. We'll see that you are the rightful king. And Lord, that you might use this text this morning to guard us from reliance on ourselves depending on us to be God ourselves. God, that you might guard us from lust, that you might guard us from pride. Lord, that you might do all these things so that you might be seen to be the glorious king that you rightfully are. Help us, Lord, to love you more as a result of studying your word and to hate sin more. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, you ready for this? We're going to tackle some strange stuff today, and I hope that it's, it's clear, and I hope that it's edifying to you as we walk through. Remember, he's writing because he says in verse 3 and 4, he says, I, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And he tells us the reason why. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says the reason he's writing to Christians is because certain people have crept into the church unnoticed, who he says were long ago designated for this condemnation. That because they taught false doctrine, because they taught lies, that there was a judgment that was reserved for them that God had spoken of over and over again. And what he's about to do in these verses is he's about to tell us about this condemnation that is reserved for them. He's going to lay out for us what that looks like. And he's going to do so in a very interesting way. Notice what he says in verse 5 as he begins our section. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What we see in the first few verses of what we're looking at this morning is God's judgment on those who pretended to be part of God's people but were actually not. And he gives biblical pictures of it. He gives Old Testament pictures of it for the edification of Christians to understand. 
Now, I want to submit to you that when you read the letter of Jude, you should really read as a companion 2 Peter. Because 2 Peter and Jude deal with very similar discussions and use very similar phrasing. So in your Bible, next to 2 Peter, you should write Jude. And next to Jude, you should write 2 Peter because they really are hand in hand together. So much so that theologians even wonder how closely they were written to one another because they're so similar. And I want to point out to you in 2 Peter, which is very close to Jude in our Bible, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, Peter writes this, speaking of the false teachers. He says, after they have escaped the defilements of this world through the knowledge of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then he compares it to a dog returning to its own vomit. Okay, now here's what he's saying. That these false teachers proclaimed to know Christ and yet had turned their back on him. They had proclaimed to know the way of righteousness and yet had turned back again towards sin. And so what he's dealing with in 2 Peter and what Jude's dealing with in his letter are people who proclaimed to be saved, proclaimed to be Christians, and yet by their very actions and teachings, they are showing themselves to be apostates, those who had turned their back on Jesus. And God says that this is not anything new. It had been taking place throughout history. And one of the ways Jude points it out is by taking them back to the Exodus. Because if you remember, God rescues his people from Egypt. He delivers them. He takes them out into the wilderness. And what happens when the people of Israel get into the wilderness? Are they marked by great obedience? No. In fact, they're marked by complaining and grumbling, believing they knew better than God, and actually at one point begin to start uh, voting on a new leader who will take them back to Egypt. And Jude shares that story to remind the Christians he's writing to about those who would look like Christians, look like those who belong to the people of God, and yet were marked for judgment. Why? Because not all the people, of, not all the Israelites who walked out of Egypt were the people of God. Not all of them were the people of God. Physical circumcision wasn't enough. They weren't all the people of God. So much so that he tells us that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not, what? Believe. That you could, you could act like you were part of the people, but not really believe. You get the connection he's making? Not everyone who walked out of Egypt was actually part of the people of God. They may have been Jews by birth, but they weren't part of his people because they did not believe. Now, does anyone else notice that Jesus is accredited for this? That Jesus was the one who saved people out of Egypt and then destroyed them? Uh-oh. What Jude's all... Remember, this is the brother of Jesus. This is the brother of Jesus saying that Jesus was the one who delivered the people out of Egypt and, and, uh, and, and destroyed the wilderness generation. Jude was brothers with Jesus. And he's saying, my brother was the one who rescued the people out of Egypt. Okay, 
Anybody else is mind blown? Because what would it take to convince you that your brother was the one who led the people out of Egypt? This is a magnificent statement Judah's making that Jesus didn't just show up on the scene when he finally got a body, right? That he wasn't just his incarnation where Jesus came into existence. Jesus has always been. In fact, so much so that Jesus is given credit for rescuing the people out of Egypt, being with them. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul says that they drank from the same spiritual rock in the wilderness and that rock was Christ. So Jesus was with his people before he took a body. Woo, doggy. But Jude wants them to remember that not everyone who looks like they're part of the family is part of the family. Then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Well, who's he talking about now? Who are these angels who did not stay within their own position of authority? I think there's a couple of options. Number one, this could be talking about the original fall of the angels, right? That under Satan's authority, rebelled against God and were cast down. But I think it may specifically be more the angels that were referred to in Genesis chapter 6. You all remember those angels referred to? They, they were an evil bunch. Because Genesis chapter 6, and this is, we're talking about weird stuff now, all right? I understand. But in Genesis chapter 6, we're told that these angels looked upon the daughters of man with lust. Took them as their wives and rebelled against God. And as such, they gave birth to giants, which were called, does anybody know the name of them? That's right. And so they were evil angels in Genesis chapter 6. I think that might be specifically who Jude is talking about because he's going to quote from Enoch, which we'll get to in just a second. But he says the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. Well, what's the problem these angels had? Number one was lust. Number two was pride. They thought themselves greater than God. Okay, just so you know, the false teachers Jude is talking about, he's trying to make a connection that sometimes the same motivations exist. The motivations of lust and pride continue to move forward. Then, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What was Sodom and Gomorrah marked by? Lust. Sexual morality, um, inappropriate relationships with angels, right? I mean, the, this idea of lust and pride is weaved throughout all of human history. And, and Jude shows it that this pride, the, the, the Israelites in the wilderness marked by pride, feeling they knew better than God, the angels in Genesis 6 who thought that they were greater, they left their place of, of position of authority and they decided they wanted to be God themselves, wanted to make up their own rules. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which were also marked by pride and lust. All of these, he says, have been marked and serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What's he saying? God reserves judgment for those who are marked by this type of rebellion. 
Now, he's not just saying this in a vacuum. He's saying this to relate it to what's happening with the false teachers in their time. Because what he's going to show is that they're motivated very similarly. And the judgment with which the wilderness generation experienced, the angels who had fallen experienced, Sodom and Gomorrah that they had experienced is reserved for those who teach falsehood and lure the people of God away from the glory of God. Now, he goes on in verse 8. What he's about to do is give the indictment to false teachers. So he's going to connect those three examples he just gave to the false teachers of their day. He says, yet in like manner these people, referring to uh, the, the false teachers, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. What were the false teachers of Jude's day guilty of? Three things. Defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones. Well, let's try to break this down as best we can. Notice, first of all, he says that they rely on their dreams to do these things. Okay, let me give you an example. First of all, anytime someone says, God told me this, your antenna should go up. And you should, guard, you should start getting a little uneasy feeling, right? Because God, God's already told us what we need to know. He, he, don't need to, he don't need to add anything to it. You with me? And so when someone walks up and says, God told me this, you should probably go, okay, does it, is it this? Because that's what he told us. These people, these false teachers of the day, apparently were leading the people astray by saying, I had a dream and God spoke to me in my dream. And the dream, God told me I could do this and that. And we could do this and that. Okay, just so you know. That's when you start going, really? I don't know. And what were they saying that God had told them in their dreams? Well, defile the flesh, which is a way of saying they polluted their own bodies, which usually is used to refer to uh, sexual sin. So these false teachers were saying, God told me in a dream that we're allowed to do this. That, that is a wicked thing. To say, God told me to lead you astray into sin. Woo, he says they, they polluted, right? they had lust. Relying on their dreams, they rejected authority. Now that word authority is singular, not plural, which means he's speaking of a singular authority, an overarching authority, which would be God's authority. So they were relying on their dreams and saying, God told me in a dream that I'm allowed to do this and I'm telling you it's okay, let's do this. They rejected the authority of God, like the Israelites in the wilderness, like the angels, like the cities mentioned. They all, motivated by pride, said, we'll be in authority, not God. And then finally he says, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now this is a little harder because there's disagreements about who exactly he's talking to. But one thing I do want to bring to your attention goes back to 2 Peter. Because again, 2 Peter is dealing with a lot of the same things. And I want to read to you 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. And Peter writes and says... Uh, actually, he says in verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Did you notice that verse 10 of 2 Peter 2 actually has the same three indictments that we see here in Jude? And they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, I believe what he's talking about are angels, that these false teachers are blaspheming 
the very messengers that God gave. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. Some people believe that, you know, in Judaism, they believe that the angels uh, were mediators of the Mosaic law. That they, they were mediators of the Mosaic law and that they watched over the observance of the law. So some people wonder if this means that the false teachers were leading people into a license to sin, a license to do whatever they wanted because God told me in a dream it was okay. And in so doing, they would be blaspheming the glorious ones. I don't know if that's for sure, but here's the connection I get, is that this blaspheming of the glorious ones is somehow connected to blaspheming of God. That to blaspheme the angels was to blaspheme the one who created them. So he says that these false teachers are guilty of defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones. Which, by the way, all three stories he shared earlier about, uh, about the exodus, about the angels who fell, and about Sodom and Gomorrah, they also would have been marked by the same things. Now notice verse 9, because this is where it gets really strange. He says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right. This story about the body of Moses is not found in the Bible. In fact, the last thing that the Bible tells us about the body of Moses is that when he died on the mountain at the end of Deuteronomy, that the Lord buried him. But because human beings have to fill in all the gaps, they started coming up with different traditions about what that meant. They had to piece it together. And one of the stories that arose out of that, right, because they're like, okay, God buried Moses, but we got to figure out how this all happened and what was the backstory to it. There was an apocryphal story, right, not included in the Bible, in extra-biblical accounts, called the Assumption of Moses. And in this story about Moses, it is said that when Moses died, the archangel Michael was sent by God to bury him. And in this story, Satan opposes the idea of Moses being buried by Michael the archangel because Moses was a murderer. Not only that, but the story goes on to say that Satan claimed rightful ownership to Moses' body because it was matter. It was, and all matter was viewed as kind of evil. And so that Satan had the rightful claim to Moses' body and he would not stand for him to be buried by Michael, the archangel, on behalf of God. Now that's the story. When Jude is talking about this, Jude's not saying, I believe all that stuff. Jude is not saying that it should have been included in the Bible. Jude's just saying this is the tradition that was handed down. You with me? And he said that even in that, Michael the archangel did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said the Lord rebuke you. In that story of the assumption of Moses, Michael leaves the matter up to God. He says that here. That the archangel Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against Satan, but said the Lord rebuke you. So what is, why in the world would Jude share this? What does this story have to do at all with what we're talking about with false teachers? Well, he's talking about the pronouncement of judgment that rightfully belongs to who? Who is the one who rightfully judges? It's not Michael the archangel. It's not any other person. Who is the one who rightfully judges? The Lord, right? He says, the Lord 
rebuke you. So I think why Jude is sharing this story is to remind him that God is the one who will exercise judgment on false teachers. He's the one who will rightfully punish. And you've seen it throughout the scriptures. You even see it in extra biblical accounts. God is the one who rightfully judges and we can rest in that. Because here's the problem. The false teachers didn't think they were responsible to anyone. They thought they were autonomous. They thought they could do whatever they wanted. But guess what Jude's telling them? You're not on your own. God is over all things. And he will judge rightly. As he has in the past, he will do so in the future. Now, verse 11. Okay, just so you know, don't ask me any more about that story because it's so confusing and it's so ridiculous. What we just need to understand is Jude is showing that to be an example of if Michael the archangel, which by the way is the only archangel that's mentioned to us here, if Michael the archangel didn't pronounce judgment but left it up to God, guess what we should probably do? Realize it's his prerogative and he will judge rightly. Verse 11. What's the proper response out of all this? Jude is going to pronounce woe upon the false teachers. God's reserved judgment for false teachers. Y'all are some false teachers. Woe to you. Beware. Warning. You're walking down the path that leads to destruction. He says, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Not Korah. This is different spelled Korah. These are not good Korahs. Right, you're, you're good. These are not good chorus. But again, notice the, the repetition of three. He gave us three examples in verses 5 through 7 from the Old Testament. And now he gives us three examples, again, from God's word. He pronounces woe on the false teachers. He says, for they walked in the way of Cain, abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. All three of these stories from the Old Testament, of course, Cain being from Genesis 4, Balaam being from Numbers chapter 22, and Korah being from number 16, what each of these stories from the Old Testament had in common was people who were not satisfied with the place they occupied. They wanted something greater for themselves. They sought gain by their own hand. Cain did it against his brother. Balaam did it as a result of desiring more money. And Korah and the priests of Korah, did, the sons of Korah did not like the position they were in, but they wanted greater for themselves. And each one of them was judged. Each one of them. And what Jude's doing again is saying, take caution, warning false teachers, these things that happened before, they will happen again. And they're marked by people who sought gain by their own activities and actions. And then the proper indictment that we see from Jude is in verse 12. This is the threat that false teachers pose. Just so we don't sit here and go, well, if people teach stuff that's a little weird, we shouldn't get out of line. You know, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Jude says there is a great threat that false teachers bring into the church. They are a great threat. Here's what he says they are in verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Hidden reefs has the picture of uh, the rocks along the shore. And a lot of times, ships can't see them. And they're very dangerous because you can't. He compares the false teachers to those reefs that are hidden. And they are dangerous. He says that the false teachers are like hidden reefs at their love feast, which, by the way, would have been their Christian community meals when they got together. 
right? This is one of the heresies that, was mar- that uh, the Christians were accused of. This is one of the th- accusations made against Christians in the first century. They were accused uh, of, of being sexually immoral because they had love feasts. And people outside the church said, y'all doing what? But these were the community meals that Christians would have together, usually wrapped around the Lord's Supper. And he says that the false teachers are like hidden, dangerous reefs sitting at your table. They feast with you without fear of anything, God's judgment or anything. He says they are shepherds feeding themselves. That's what false teachers are. If you have a false teacher within the church, guess what? They are a shepherd seeking to feed themselves off of you. He says they are shepherds feeding themselves. They are false. They're not truly for the sheep. They're for themselves. He says that false teachers are like waterless clouds swept along by winds. They're like big, you ever seen some of those big old clouds coming from the west? And you're like, oh no, this is about to get hairy. And then by the time it gets to you, nothing happens. And you're like, well, that was, that was disappointing. Jude says that false teachers are like waterless clouds swept along by the winds. They promise rain, but they don't deliver. He says they're like fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. They promise fruit, but there is none. He says they're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. They're evil, and their deeds are going to be seen as such. They're like wild waves, casting up foam of their own shame. And then he says they're wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Now, I think what they're talking about, having looked at different theologians and what they think about this phrasing, wandering stars, a lot of theologians believe are talking about planets. And here's the problem. If you try to base your navigation off planets, you're going to run into some problems. Why? Because they move. (laughs) Here Jude says that false teachers are like trying to guide your way across the Atlantic by using the planets which are constantly moving. They get you off course. They, They take you the wrong direction. What he's saying in all of these descriptions is that false teachers are dangerous. That's why Paul was passionate about making sure that if there were any false teachers in the church, they were exposed and they were out. Because they are dangerous. They are hidden threats that the church doesn't even notice until they begin to lead people the wrong way. And then he says in verse 14, it was, about, it was also about these that Enoch The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So here, Jude quotes from an intertestamental book called First Enoch. It's not in your Bible, right? It's not in your Bible. It is an extra-biblical book piece of literature. And it was said to have been written by Enoch, prophecies of his. Now again, I mentioned to you that just because Jude quotes from it does not necessarily mean Jude agreed with everything in it. He's simply pulling out what is true. This is true. But he's not saying go pick up the book of First Enoch and start reading it and staple it in your Bibles. No. He's just alluding to it. The same way that Paul in Acts 17 quoted from Greek poets. He wasn't saying he agreed with everything they wrote. He was just saying that what they wrote that he quoted was applicable. The same thing here with Jude. He quotes from 1 Enoch, 
where it was said that the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. That is true. The Lord promises that one day he is coming with ultimate judgment. And all of those who are false teachers who have sought to lead the people of God astray, who have looked like Christians while being false and playing a part, they will be judged. And he said they'll be judged not because they were just ignorant, they'll be judged because they were ungodly. Do you notice in this verse, verse 14 and 15, how often he says ungodly? One, two, three, four times. He speaks of their ungodliness. The reason they're going to be judged by God is not because of just some oops, I didn't mean to do that. It's going to be because of their ungodly words, behavior, and teachings. And God says he reserves the right to ultimate judgment, and it's coming. And then he finishes with, these are grumblers. Well, that sounds a lot like the Israelites in the wilderness, doesn't it? He says they're malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. You know what marks the false teachers? Lust and pride. They want for themselves. And they will use the people of God to get exactly what they want. And Jude says they are dangerous and they exist among you. And it is your job to contend for the faith as a real part of the family of God. As a Christian, one who belongs to God's family, it is up to you to contend for the faith. To stand boldly against false teaching and to call it what it is and to point it out. That's one of the reasons why when I teach about other pastors who teach falsehood, I call them by name. I'm not doing that to be mean. I'm doing it because my job in the midst of error is to point to where it is and to tell you there it is. Don't follow it. Do not follow Joel Osteen. Do not follow Joyce Meyer. Do not follow T.D. Jakes. Do not follow Creflo Dollar. Do not follow Benny Hinn. They are all false teachers who are seeking to lead people astray for their own gain. And they will use you and they will teach you whatever they want to move your heart to give them whatever they desire of themselves. I'm here to tell you that the true minister of God does not do it for the gain that he gets from you. He gets it from the gain of the Lord. And I'm telling you, as a pastor and leaders of this church, we need to call false teaching what it is. And we need to tell people that they need to repent. But let us not deceive ourselves into thinking that it's no big deal. It is a huge deal. Because Jude says they are like dangerous reefs awaiting ships to crash into them. They're like selfish shepherds who just want for themselves. They're like the planets that lead people astray when navigating. They are not in it because they love the Lord Jesus. They're not in it because they love you. They're in it because they want for themselves. And God has and will judge rightly. So we don't have to worry as Christians. We call out sin. We call out false teaching. But we don't worry Because God says he will provide shepherds to point out the wolves. And he himself will protect his people. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to come in here and go, oh, who is it? Who who in the room is the false teacher? Oh, who is it? We can rest knowing that God will rightly judge all things. All he's called us to do is to contend for the faith. Stand for the truth and teach it without shame. 
and he'll take care of the rest. And as a church, when we see false teaching, we call it out. Even if it's me. If I teach falsehood, you call me out. You say, Jason, well, first of all, pull me aside. Okay, don't, otherwise, otherwise services will turn into, I don't think that's right. But I'm saying, in general, if I'm teaching things that are against the Bible, you need to pull me aside and you need to call me to repent. Now, I'm not saying if I don't follow your preference. I'm not saying if I don't follow your preference on the non-essential items. I'm talking about if I start to contradict the core, basic, foundational truth, the faith that is found in the Word of God, you need to pull me aside. You need to call me to repent. And anyone who teaches, we need to hold them to the standard that they will teach the Word of God because it is the only truth we have. And it is sufficient for every instant. So what do we walk away with? This is weird, right? I don't know how many of you have spent time studying this, this book. It's weird. So what do we walk away with? How do, how do we use this for the rest of this week? Well, number one, the question I think is clear. Are we part of the people of God? Are we truly a Christian? Or are we playing the part? Because the difference between the false teachers and those who were truly Christians were the false teachers were acting a part. They tried to look like Christians while not really believing. We have to ask ourselves the same question. Are we actually trusting in Jesus or are we just acting like a Christian when we come to church because that's expected of us? Are we acting like a Christian when we go home because people expect us to do that? Or are we truly trusting in Jesus? Because just so you know, Jesus knows the difference between the two. Jesus knows the difference between the wheat and the tares. He knows the difference between the sheep and the goats. He knows. And so it doesn't matter whether we can confuse everyone else or trick everyone else because we can't trick God. So the only question we need to answer this morning is, are you truly trusting in Jesus or are you acting like a Christian while still trying to be the master of your own domain? I'm here to tell you that God has called us through Christ to trust solely in his purchased pardon for us. That we have to trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, not anything to do with our own efforts. We can't earn God's acceptance, but he's given it to us freely in Jesus, and he's called us to believe that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but he also rose from the dead to conquer our sin. So I'm urging every person in this room, if you're here and you've been faking it, I want to urge you to trust in Jesus, and you will find people who aren't going to go, I cannot believe they faked it all this time. No, you're going to find people who say, we are so glad that you have trusted in Jesus. But stop faking. Stop acting. Because God knows the difference. And no one's going to stand next to you on that day and plead your case. Only Christ can do that. Trust in Jesus. It's not about acting a role. It's about trusting in the Savior. Number two, if you are a Christian, you must contend for the faith. You must contend. You must fight for the truth. You must stand for the truth. You must immerse yourself in the word of God. Know it understand it, and be ready to stand for it, even when the rest of the world tells you this is nonsense and myth and gobbledygook to help you get through your hard life. You stand on the truth. You fight for it. You stand in the face of lies, and you call them what they are, and you base everything on the perfect word of God. As Christians, we have to do that because if we don't do it, the world certainly won't do it. 
We must contend for the faith, for the truth, as God has given it to us. We must stand for the Bible. By the way, God tells us that's the only place where blessing is found. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is he who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Number three, we rest as Christians that God will rightly judge all people. We can rest in God's sovereign justice. We don't have to get it ourselves. We don't have to win the argument. We just know that we can trust that God is going to rightly act and judge in his time. And he will do so where no one will be able to say God was unfair. He will do it rightly and he will do it perfectly. And because of that, we can rest as Christians. We don't have to be scared. We don't have to fret. We can rest in the fact that God will expose false teachers and God will judge rightly. And because of that, We need to heed the warnings that God gives us. Because within each one of us, even though we're Christians, within each one of us is the lure to want to fall back, trusting in our own truth instead of God's truth. The lure is there. And we have to be careful that we don't walk after it. So we need to heed God's warnings, lest we were to fall into lust and to pride thinking that we were greater than all the others who came before us, somehow will escape judgment even though they didn't. No, we realized this morning that God gives us Jude in our Bibles to warn us, don't fall into the same trick they did. Don't follow error because judgment rightly awaits. We need to examine our hearts every day to make sure that we're not motivated in chasing after lust or pride or desiring to be our own God, but that every day we submit ourselves to the rightful rule of Jesus. And that's such a glorious thing. It does not rob us of joy. It is where joy is found. And so I'm asking all of us, I'm pleading with all of us, first of all, that we trust in Jesus. We stop playing and acting like a Christian. We actually are one. That we trust in Jesus. And number two, if we're Christians, we stand for the faith. We contend for it. We fight for it. We believe in it. We trust it. We believe everything God says is right. And we're willing to lay down our lives for the truth. We're willing to lay down our lives. And we're willing to be called fools while we stand on the truth of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you will help us to rightly see in your word that your justice is true. God, that you warn us throughout your word to keep us and guard us from following after our own desires. And Lord, it is such an enticing temptation to follow after our own desires. But Lord, thankfully you show us our own hearts. You expose our hearts for what they are and God, you teach us how to walk after you. You teach us what is real. And Lord, I'm thankful that your word shows us that you are the only holy God. And we as people are sinners, every single one of us, we've all blown it. And yet, God, you have shown amazing grace by sending your son Jesus to die for us. That he would die and he would rise again, paying for our our sin, purchasing our pardon so that we could stand before you knowing that we are forgiven people. God, I pray that you will help this morning, God, to convict hearts of those who are acting like Christians. And God, that you might show them their desperate need to trust in Jesus. God, that they'd stop trying to be their own Savior and they would trust in the only Savior. And Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as Christians and help guard our hearts by your word from walking after our own desires. 
our own pride, trying to be our own God. God, that you would guard us, you would keep us by your word, by the work of the Spirit in convicting us. Lord, may you root out sin in our lives and guard us from any of Satan's temptations. Lord, we pray that this morning what you'll receive is glory because you alone are the one who has rescued. And so, Lord, I pray this morning you will rescue hearts and you will guard your people from falsehood. Do it all so that you might be proclaimed worthy of all glory. God, I pray that your word would go forth, that more people will trust in you and your kingdom would expand to the ends of the earth, that one day we'll all stand around your throne and we'll sing that you alone, God, are holy, holy, holy. God, make us holy today through your son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to